welcome to Econ Talk, brought to you by the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. My guest today is Don Boudreau, Chairman of the Economics Department here at George Mason, and my co-host at Cafe Hayek, the blog we write together. Our topic today is Friedrich Hayek, who I sometimes think of as the best economist most people haven't heard of. His most famous book is The Road to Serfdom. And that's the book most people read if they're going to read something by Hayek. But today we're going to focus on Hayek's book, Law, Legislation, and Liberty, and in particular on Volume 1, which is subtitled Rules and Order. Don, uh, welcome to Econ Talk. Good to be here. Now, Law, Legislation, and Liberty is, you tell me, your favorite book by Hayek. Uh, Why is that? What do you love about it? And how did you come to the book? Not only my favorite book by Hayek, it's probably my favorite book of of all time, with uh, Richard Dawkins' Blind Watchmaker being the only contender. Not Anna Karenina? My, that's my favorite novel. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I came to I was in college at Nickel State University, and my professor there, Bill Field, uh, introduced me to Hayek. And so I'd read Use of Knowledge in Society, The Road to Serfdom, and uh, I think by then also The Constitution of Liberty, and it was, I believe, the summer of 1979, just before my senior year, I ordered from, from Laissez-Faire Books uh, the, the first two volumes of Law, Legislation, and Liberty. The third volume wasn't out yet. came out later that year. And I was very excited about Hayek and, and about his work, and I read the book as soon as it arrived. I, I can remember being just tearing the cellophane wrapper off of it when it arrived at, at my parents' home. And the the scholarship and the depth of the book immediately impressed me it was it was deeper it is deeper i think than the constitution of liberty even though it's much shorter uh i think it's hayek's deepest work it's it's one of the deepest works i've ever read what i learned from it are themes that i know are exist throughout other parts of hayek's work the distinction between made orders and, and, and undesigned orders or spontaneous orders. Uh, uh, but most importantly for, for this book probably was the distinction between law and legislation. And the reason that was important, which Hayek drove home in this volume, is the idea that law itself uh, is... Uh, can evolve from unplanned from human actions in the same way that prices and product qualities and quantities and market arrangements evolve from uh, unplanned from human actions. So the idea that law itself can emerge and good good law can emerge uh, from uh, spontaneous interactions of individuals pursuing their own self-interest I, I, I found in, intriguing. Well, let's do, give our readers some back, our listeners some background on this the, because Hayek uses the word law very differently than the everyday sense of the word. But to start with the background, let's talk about that distinction that Hayek talks about in Chapter 2 of the book, which is the distinction between uh, different kinds of order. So he actually in his initial discussion of it, distinguishes between made order and grown 
order, a more organic, emergent concept, which he could then calls spontaneous order. And it's not it's not the greatest phrase. One of the one of the insights of Hayek, I think, is that we don't really have a language to talk about this type of order. But we all know we all know what a made order is. A made order is you rake your yard and your your the leaves are cleaned up and you impose that order on your yard. Uh, you hire people for your organization. Uh, you design something. Uh, that's a made order. But a grown order or a spontaneous order or or an emergent order is very different and not so intuitive. Talk talk about what Hayek means by that kind of order. It, 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 it's, a, it's a layered concept. There are different layers of insight uh, that I at least see in, in Hayek's discussion of the order. It, 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 of course, it, in, it involves the kind of thing that Adam Smith spoke about, just unplanned, not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, the baker that we expect our meal, but from their regard to their own self-interest. And you get an order, people get fed, no one intends it. It's kind of nice to think about. Uh, when you say but, no one intends it, obviously the, the butcher intends to sell you food, right. but the, the prevalence of food and its, its regular availability yeah. uh, in a city, say, or in a marketplace is uh, not planned by anyone. There's no meat czar who, who, who gets up every day and says, okay, how are we going to make sure there's enough meat in the city? Indeed, and, 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 and even, even the, the, the principal intention that drives the butcher, the brewer, and the baker – uh, is not to feed the city. It's to make money. It's to make it earn an income for themselves. Obviously, at the point of sale, they understand what they're doing. And you know, I think intentions can 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 be multidimensional and, and complex. But they're not driven to become butchers, bakers, and brewers because they want to help society. It's, it's, it's the way they make make a living. But anyway, Smith knew that, uh, and a lot of other people knew that. Hayek certainly understood and appreciated that. But the uh, the idea of a spontaneous order goes more deeply. And I think Hayek first worked out this idea in his 1960, I think it was a 1962 essay called Kinds of, Kinds of Order in Society, where he distinguished between made orders and, and spontaneous orders. And a, a made order, like a firm uh, or a government bureaucracy, has a purpose. Mm-hmm. That purpose may change. It may be very difficult to enforce that purpose, but it has a purpose. A spontaneous order as an order itself, has no purpose. There's no purpose to society itself. The, 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 U, the U.S. economy does not aim toward a specific purpose. It is an order of individuals, each with their own purposes. We can discuss, and there's some meaning to it, to say that, well, in a good, spontaneous order, the ability of the individuals within that order to achieve their goals, however they define those goals, is maximized. But the, but the society itself, the spontaneous order itself, does not have an articulable, identifiable goal toward which it aims in the same way that a firm or a university or a government bureaucracy has a goal. And, and the words that we're using here, goal, purpose, we're really talking, I think, about the conscious intention of the the leader of that organization or firm or or uh, entity. That's right. Um, so I think one of the confusions that we have about spontaneous order, when we think of, for example, markets, 
markets often act as if they have a purpose. For example, if we put a tax on a market, on the market for gasoline, buyers and sellers will evade that tax in all kinds of creative ways. The most obvious way being they'll transact fewer gallons of, of gasoline between the, between each other. But they'll do subtler things. They'll sometimes degrade quality as a way of evading a tax. And both buyers and sellers will be in favor of that. Or they will increase quality. They'll, they'll look for ways to get around a tax and reduce the burden of the tax, the distortion of the tax. But no seller or no buyer sits around and says, I've got to figure out how I can evade, how we can reorganize this market. Through self-interest, they're led to evade the tax. Uh, so there's no, we often talk about, we use the word market. We say, well, markets do X or markets do Y. We use that language as if markets had a purpose, as if markets had a conscious intention. But of course, a market is not a sentient creature with design, consciousness, intention. It is simply this weird concept of a spontaneous order. So when we say, when you say, Hayek says that something doesn't have a purpose, the idea there is that it may turn out to have a purpose, it may achieve some end, but not through anyone's intention. Is that, is that a correct way to say it? I, I would say not, not quite. Um, it's not, even there, it's not the society that's achieving a purpose. Agreed. It's the, society, the spontaneous order society that uh, allows, it, it, the language is very difficult here, and I don't, I don't have a very good way to, to describe it. The, it the, the, the spontaneous order society is one in which uh, individuals in that society uh, have reasonably good chances of achieving their ch- freely chosen goals. No one, and Hayek, of course, emphasizes this point, no one is guaranteed in any, certainly in any specific instance, to have his or her goals achieved. Disappointment I- exists uh, and will always exist. But it's not that the, that, the, the, that the society achieves the goal. The society is it's an abstraction. It doesn't have any thoughts. It has no, no intentions, no anything. It's not aware of anything. Um, of course, in this in a sense, you know, the, the firm is in a way something of an abstraction, but it's, I think, a less of an abuse of thought and language to talk about, you know, your uh, yogurt shop uh, uh, aiming to, you as the owner of a yogurt shop, if you owned one, you would want to bring in customers in order to make the maximum amount of money for yourself and your family. And that's there's no corresponding kind of single identifiable purpose. No, I understand that, yeah. but I, the, the the point I'm trying to make here maybe maybe it's uh, maybe it's confusing. Maybe the language maybe, is maybe difficult. it's wrong. Let me let me try to say it again. Uh, the market for bagels acts each day to provide bagels for acts is not the right word because it's not it's not intentional. Uh, the market here's where the language problem arises. Uh, let me try to word it differently. Uh, in Washington D.C., if I wake up in the morning, I'm pretty confident, extremely confident, that I can find a bagel nearby or a cup of coffee nearby. Uh, no one's in charge of that. The immense coordination that's necessary to provide the availability of those two goods at reasonable prices. And yet, I can wake up in the morning without anxiety that I'm going to walk into my corner store and and find those things. No one 
intends that widespread availability. It is achieved through the uncoordinated actions of individuals, but as social scientists, as economists, looking at it, we often in the classroom say, and I'm actually, I want to criticize this idea, but we, as a shorthand, we say, oh, the market makes sure that there are plenty of bagels, plenty of coffee. Now, there is no such thing. As you say, it's an abstraction, but I think that's a very common language that we use, and I think one of the insights of Hayek is that something much deeper is going on. We're imposing on that phenomenon our our intuition from other places where intention leads to results. Here, there is no intention, and yet the result emerges, and so we fall back on this more intentional language. But the way I understand the the spontaneous order of the availability of of coffee and high-quality coffee nearby at reasonable prices, the way I understand that is that it emerges without anyone's intention. Yes. And it is no one's purpose. No individual has the purpose of creating that availability, but it looks that way, which is why we use these types of language. Is that a yeah, better way yeah, to say yeah, it? Yeah, that's fine. And as you know, uh, I'm very keen on this little article by Jim Buchanan that he wrote in 1982. It's actually a letter to the editor um, uh, called uh, Order Defined in the Process of Its Emergence. And uh, in a lot of ways, that very short letter that Buchanan wrote. It's a few hundred words, right? It's probably just 200 maybe. It's incredibly short. Um, It it, it was a letter written in response to a very nice essay by the British philosopher Norman Barry on the spontaneous order. Which we have up on the website at the Library of Economics and Liberty, and we'll put a link up to that. Right, and Buchanan's letter is probably probably there too. It's in his collected works. But... um, that letter resonates with me because what Buchanan said, and, and I will not be as eloquent as Buchanan is, certainly not in as short a space as Buchanan was, uh, is that we often talk, he, he was critical you know, in a friendly way of Barry, saying, look, we often talk, we, we say the spontaneous order is one that uh, uh, would have been brought about by an omniscient designer were there such a thing. And Buchanan said, "That's that. this is an important insight. Uh, uh the order itself, its parameters, its 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 properties, uh, emerges along with the order. It's very difficult to say. Order defined in the process of its emergence. The order we get uh, was not preconceived or even preconceivable. Uh, we look back on it when it exists. And we recognize it as having certain properties that we, that most people regard as orderly. But it's not the kind of thing that a central designer, even one with omniscience and omnipotence, uh, could have designed. It's an abusive language even to talk in that way. That's what Buchanan says. And I think that's, in a way, maybe even an extension of the message of Volume 1 of Hayek's Law, Legislation, and Liberty. It's a very subtle concept. I think it's incredibly subtle, yeah. Uh, it, it's really a distinction, it seems to me, between ex-ante and ex-post. So after the fact, it's easy to say, oh, that could have been designed had someone had all the information. You know, One of the standard insights of spontaneous order, and, and Hayek especially, is that, well, no one mind could contain the sufficient information. But the, in, but, but the, the information itself 
changes and is developed and is created as as the uh, process that makes the order goes along. There, there is the the information that we can reconstruct at you know today that goes into making up this order that we see around us. That information, according to Buchanan, and I think Hayek would agree, I certainly agree, that information was not only not available to a planning mind a centralized years ago or a month ago, whenever the right time period in the past is, it was fundamentally unavailable to that mind. That that information itself was created in a very real way uh, as the process moved on. Think you know I, I don't know I, I, uh, uh, thinking aloud here. You, you, my preference for uh, the kind of neckties I wear. Uh, it's not that that ten years ago I knew what kind of neckties I wanted to buy in 2006, but was unable to convey that in adequate uh, detail to some central designer planner, even if there was such a central planner. I didn't know what kind of neckties uh, I, I wanted to wear. I, uh, if you'd have asked me, I, I, I may have given an answer, but it'd be very different, probably, from the kind of things I actually choose today. It, it is very subtle. Well, and I never feel quite confident in explaining about well, it. This insight really is, is embedded in the use of knowledge in society. Yeah. An article also on our site that we'll, that we'll put up. But in, in that article, he tries to talk about the different kinds of knowledge that there are, there are kinds of knowledge, such as um, you know the capital of Japan, um, the population of a city, uh, what's the average temperature in a particular place uh, in the month of February. But most of the important knowledge that creates civilization is not of that kind. It's much subtler, can't be looked up, and is. Uh, emerges, the knowledge itself, as you're pointing out, emerges under the uh, informational, excuse me, the, it emerges as the structure of incentives change is the way I like to think about it. So if, you know, if price goes up and you look for substitutes for a particular product in your life, or if a manufacturer mm -hmm. who has an input, a raw material that gets more expensive and looks for substitutes, it's easy to say, oh, well, you just, you just find things that are alternatives. But in, in advance of that change in price, we might not be able to specify how we would respond to those changes. Once we're confronted with that price change, the knowledge itself emerges. It's not something you can look up in a book. That's right. uh, it, it's much subtler. And as a result, you're right, it's much more than just, oh, it's dispersed. The knowledge is dispersed. It's not even in existence yet. And I think the Buchanan uh, insight there is uh, the subtlety of that insight, and it's not obvious, and uh, it's very important. Yeah, and it's it's it's. I mean, maybe in a way this is sort of a, a, a cop out, but I think it's the kind of insight that uh, is certainly worth grasping. But unlike a lot of less, uh, more shallow insights, <laughs> you don't, at, at least not someone of ordinary intelligence like myself, I don't grasp it immediately. I read it. And I reflect on it. And I, oh, yes, I go back and read it again. But I think it's really deep. And I think it's really worthwhile to re reflect on on that that insight, which is, yeah, again, in a way, it's it's very much a, uh, a brilliant summary of this first volume of Hayek's 
Maybe we should, we should say one more thing about these spontaneous orders. Well, at least one more thing, maybe a few more things about these emergent, grown, organic, spontaneous orders before we move on to the distinction between law and legislation. And, and that is this. Um, Hayek often uses the phrase, which comes from Adam Ferguson, a predecessor of Adam Smith, things that are order or things or institutions or uh, phenomena that are the result of human action but not human design. And all the examples we've been talking about so far fall into that, that category, um, things that are the result of human action. They definitely come from people interacting, but not of human design, not of someone intending them, not of, not of someone having that purpose. And I find that language uh, was very helpful to me in understanding uh, the concept of spontaneous order. Ferguson was actually talking about, I think, cultural and governmental institutions, mm -hmm. but Hayek uses it often to apply to any kind of spontaneous order. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like that language as well, and I, and I do think the the, uh, the the notion that something can be both the result of human action but not of human design, the failure to grasp that notion is responsible for an enormous amount of intellectual confusion in the world. And it, it frankly, it goes straight to uh, this distinction that Hayek makes between law and legislation. And I think, you know, we, we have that intuition from our individual lives that everything that is um, that we observe around us often is the product of our design. So, for example, if, if you want to have a neat house, it doesn't clean itself up. You've got to go and and clean the house up yourself. You got to do the dishes. They don't do themselves. They're not your dishes are not self-organizing. They don't clean themselves and put themselves away. Although a dishwasher certainly makes it uh, certainly makes it a lot easier. But it, it might be useful to our listeners to to hear a few examples of this um, this because it is so unintuitive. You know, one example. Uh, the language is the obvious example. Yeah, language. Uh, no one. No one decided that Google is a verb, right. but it's a verb. And it's the fact that Google is a verb that if I say I Googled you the other day, Don, and I saw this reference to your work, everybody understands that what I mean, no one decreed, no individual, no committee decreed that. But we, as the users of the English language, have in some dimension, we've not decreed it because that implies some sort of intentionality or purpose, but we have caused it to happen mm -hmm. through our through our individual actions. Other words have not survived or become obsolete or obscure. Um, in an essay I have at the Library of Economics and Liberty, I talk about traffic as an obvious example of this, or the price of houses, mm -hmm. uh, a more standard market-based phenomenon. No one decides what the price of a house is in Washington, D.C. versus the price of a house in Peoria, Illinois, but there's an orderliness to their predictability of their differences. Clearly, the price of housing is caused by humans but it's not caused by the owner of the house. And we have an inevitable presumption from the rest of our lives that anything we observe that is orderly must have been intended by someone. And as you point out, it's a very destructive and dangerous presumption. It's not true. Yeah, on, on the housing price thing, incidentally, uh, it, it, it is true in any, in any individual circumstance. A homeowner uh, can, of course, choose to sell a house at any price below market value. Uh, can try to sell it above, but they won't. But they can choose to sell it. I could sell my house for $10 if I want. Um, I won't, of course. Very few people would. But I think the fact that people, any, any 
each of the you know millions of homeowners could intentionally choose to sell the home at a price lower than the current market value uh, reinforces the idea that you know these these prices are determined by by people because you know a buyer agrees to agrees to a certain price consciously the seller agrees to a certain price but the important thing, the market value of the house is not anyone's intention i can agree to sell my house for $100 that doesn't change the market value of my house there's a certain market value to my house. the maximum amount right allowing that that yeah allowing allowing buyers and sellers to uh compete uh uh, to, to, to freely contract for housing, the fact that buyers want to get best deals possible and sellers want to get best deals possible brings about prices that we regard, we economists, and most people regard as reasonably good um, measures of the market value. Uh, we, we must be careful not to confuse the, the, the actual... Well, one way to look at it is that the prices sort of reflect the the market value as of, if there's some real market value out there, but of course there's no such thing. It, well, it, it changes. It, it, it's determined by people's supply and demand, people's estimations. But the point I want to make is that uh, uh, it's the market value of the houses that is the product of spontaneous ordering forces. It's an example of a spontaneous order. Uh, the market, the fact that you can choose to sell your house at a price lower than that, doesn't change that fact. It doesn't alter the... A few people, but as you point out, few people do that. One of the reasons they, they don't do that is that if you, it isn't just that they're greedy or self-interested, if you want to phrase it in a more attractive way. If you, in the Washington, D.C. area, uh, sold your house, put your house on the market at, say, $100, you would have a very disorderly challenge, which is who point. to choose yeah. uh, to buy it. There would be thousands of people. Of course, you could choose randomly. You could choose the most... Attractive, you the tallest, the thinnest, the fattest. I mean, there'd be ways to solve that challenge, uh, but it would be a challenge. And in, in, it's interesting in many situations where people have deliberately, well-intentioned, set prices below market value, uh, riots break out as people uh, compete it's a very nice for the point. access to get at this right. underpriced good. Right. People are hurt. People are literally trampled in some of these settings. Yeah, you, it's a spontaneous disorder. Yeah. It's an unintentional disorder. Well, I want to, while we're on the housing case, I want to make one other observation for um, the role of competition. A lot of people uh, like to say, as sellers of houses, uh, well, my house is unique because you know it's got this garden I put in or this porch or deck or it's got this woodwork or we redid the kitchen and we did a great job. So it's true, there are houses like ours, but ours is unique. So we can get X dollars for it, where X is above the market. And uh, housing is a beautiful example of our in our everyday life we often forget about where the power of competition is, is so uh, unavoidable. Uh, you can imagine that your house is unique. You have a monopoly, and people say, well, I only need to find one buyer. But it's going to be very hard to find that one buyer if you charge more than than the market price, if you charge more than other houses of similar quality. Incredibly, you can't define what the quality of a house is. You can try. You can say, well, it's a certain number of bedrooms, a certain number of square feet. It's got this feature like it has a deck of this size. And yet, you really can't specify. It's an art to try to guess about what the market value of a house is. 
But if you price above it, you'll find out because you won't sell your house or you'll take a very, very long time to find the one buyer who falls in love with the kitchen that you chose or the layout for the deck or the garden. And I think it's a a beautiful example of how competition uh, produces this emergent order of prices and in turn constrains people and, and gives the illusion that you set the price for your house. But if you set it up, we've been talking about setting the price below. If you set it above, you will find out. And uh, right. you'll, right. you'll be brought back to earth. That's right. Yeah. So. Well, let, let's turn to this distinction now between law and legislation, which um, I learned about from you, and you in turn learned about it, I think, from Hayek. Um, I found it very puzzling at first. Don, in our casual conversations, I would say, oh, Congress passed this law the other day to do such and such. And you'd say, no, that's not law. That's legislation. And you relentlessly correct me, and I now – uh, pretty relentlessly correct myself when I misuse uh, the word law to equal legislation. But in everyday language, we equate the two. We use the words interchangeably, but you and Hayek uh, think that's a, a, a conceptual error. Talk about that. Yeah, and, and, and before I do, we, we even talk about legislators as being lawmakers. That's a common way that we refer to them, and I, I think that's a, a mistake. Uh, Hayek's distinctions is a, a summary of... Uh, Fairly deep and complex topic. Uh, legislation is, is are consciously designed rules that may be of general application. They may be a very specific application, but they're consciously designed rules that are enforced basically at the point of a gun by a sovereign. If you don't obey, you get shot ultimately. Law or, or put in jail or well, but ultimately, ultimately get shot because if you know you resist, you know, if you keep you resist jail enough, you'll be shot. Oh, yeah? I guess that's yeah. true. Yeah. Um, but it, it, it's the legislation is enforced with the threat of force, threat of violence. Law is the emergent patterns of behavior that become in, incorporated into most people's expectations uh, and that can be enforced with threats of violence, but are not necessarily enforced with threats of violence. Uh, let me give you a – oh, and before, also, uh, much of what looks like legislation is, in fact, law. If Congress or if, if, if the legislature merely uh, codifies uh, uh, certain widely recognized patterns of expectations, that's just a codification of law. Hammurabi's Code, Hayek discusses that. Hammurabi's Code uh, is not a piece of legislation at least not by and large, it's a codification of existing law. Uh, but uh, one of my favorite examples of law, and you and I have talked about this, is uh, actually I get this from my, my old teacher, Randy Holcomb, uh, at, who has been at Auburn University. Uh, he had the observation that you walk into a school cafeteria at lunchtime and you want a place to sit, you're a student or a faculty member, and you notice it's very crowded. And there's a long line to get food. And what people do is they take their books or their backpack and they put it down on an empty chair or on the table uh, just in front of an empty chair. And they go wait in line and they get their food. And 10 minutes later, they come out. And sure enough, no one is sitting in that chair. That space is reserved for that person. Even though it's probably the case, it's almost surely the case, that had that backpack with those books not been put at that space, 
when you would have come back to that space, someone else would be sitting there. So someone came by before you and was before while well, you were in line, but before you came back, and looked for a place to sit, noticed your books, and walked away disappointed because they knew that those books reserved that space. Now this is law, in my view. This is a beautiful example of law. It's not written down anywhere. You, you, you can. We're in Virginia here. No, I'm sure there's nothing in the Virginia statute book. There's nothing. There's no decision by the Virginia Supreme Court. It's not in the Virginia Constitution. There's nothing in the U.S. Code. Uh, nothing. Not in the George Mason Handbook or Faculty Student Handbook or Faculty Handbook that says you know books reserve places at at, at at a table. But we all recognize that that pattern of behavior. And it's true, it can be violated. Laws are violated all the time. Just because a law is violated doesn't mean it's not law. Uh, but it, the, the key point here is that you have an expectation. You have an expectation. That that's likely to be an accepted way to lay claim to that piece of uh, that up, that up, that seat. That's right. If you put your books down, think about it. If you put your books down and you come back and you see your books moved aside and, and some stranger sitting there eating, it's a small thing. You probably won't make a big have, deal out of it. Have a but, fight, but. but you feel that that, you, that it's been that there's been some violation there. Another example, I blogged in this uh, a while back at Cafe Hayek, are, are, are speed limits. You know, lawyers talk about black letter law, and there's no. What do they mean by that? Uh, very plain by the letter law. Uh, you know, without any of any of the nuance. Yeah, fifty-five uh, mile an hour speed limit's pretty. That, it's literally, it's literally black letter or black numeral yeah. law. And so you're driving down the highway and it says fifty-five, and you know the the traffic is not unusually heavy. Your car's in good in, in, in good repair. Um, the the weather is is decent, and you're driving sixty miles an hour. Are you breaking the law? Well. If you interpret law as what the legislature says, what's written down, well, you're breaking the law because it says 55. Cop pulls you over and uh, says, you know, you've been going, you were going 60 miles an hour. And you say, well, yeah, so what? And he says, well, what part of 55 don't you understand? And, you know, you feel if he gives you a ticket, you feel like there's something wrong because you know and he knows and you know he knows. The expectation is that people can drive five, six, ten miles seven. an hour. I think, I think that every, most of us act... Well, it? that's why I chose five. They can, you can drive <laughs> five miles an hour over the speed limit, and you're not really breaking the law. Now, if you're going 95 miles an hour, in both cases, you're upset that you get, get pulled over. Right. But you don't feel like you've been wronged. Correct. You, you know you, you've broken the law and you got caught. And, 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 and so that's an example where what is written down in the clearest possible terms is not really the, the law is something different. The law is you can drive above that. It, it, in the in the in the case of the uh, books and backpacks reserving cafeteria tables, nothing's written down at all. But it's an emergent law. The most interesting and it's widely studied case that I know of 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 something that most people would would more readily call law uh, uh, that emerged along these these spontaneous lines is the Lex Mercatoria, the, the law merchant, which uh, ha finds its roots back in medieval uh, Mediterranean, medieval Mediterranean era when uh, traders, particularly along the northern Mediterranean, began trading with Genoa and, and, and Venice and maybe traders going down to North Africa. And all these little city-states, none of them were under a sovereign. Uh, maybe they were under the, you know, the, the papacy, but, but 
the, the, the Pope wasn't getting involved in enforcing these, these, these commercial contracts. And these merchants uh, developed their own courts, and uh, these courts were manned by merchants, and there would be disputes that would arise. Um, our ship would go out to sea, and the goods that were on the ship were never delivered. Maybe the boat uh, sunk at sea in a storm. There's no good guy, bad guy here, but perhaps the buyer uh, advanced the seller the money. So the buyer wants his money back. He didn't get his goods. The seller says, "Well, I got, you know, I got the money, but I, I, you know, I lost the goods. I shipped the goods. They never arrived. It's not my fault. It's no one's fault. It's, it's nature's fault. Who's right and who's wrong? There's no. You can't answer this with morality. Uh, it was answered in this merchant courts by, by whatever expectations developed, and these uh, rules that emerge in these merchant courts, which, which were not enforced by sovereigns, and, and we know from research that." Uh, these rules were by and large accepted and abided by even by defendants who who lost judgments. The reason they abided by them is because their reputation was of great value to them. If they didn't abide by a judgment, no king or no army would come to their hometown and, 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 and rip resources from them, but they would uh, no longer be able to participate in uh, Mediterranean commerce. They're out of the club. They're out of the club. Uh, and so th this is an example of, this merchant law is an example of very nuanced, uh, workable law uh, that to this, it, it exists to this day. It's encoded the, 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 the core of the Uniform Commercial Code in the United States uh, is a direct descendant of the medieval law merchant. Uh, things have been added to it. It's been tweaked and changed a little bit to meet more modern circumstances. But the law itself, no one, no, it, it's by and large, the Uniform Commercial Code is by and large a codification of emergent law uh, that happened, you know, many generations ago among uh, merchant traders who wanted nothing other than to have, you know, good, reliable, profitable commerce. Well, it's, it's a great example. I, it reminds me of a, of a modern version of that. And this might help bring out the, the role that expectations play, because I, I think that's a very subtle idea in this. And when, when we finish this, I want to talk about just the importance of that. But if you buy a house in America, it's a pretty painful experience. There, there's an enormous amount of legal um, activity around that experience. And, and when you close on your house when you make the final exchange of, of the deed and the keys and you're, you're sitting often at a title company with your lawyers, the other side sitting with, with their lawyers, um, you, you sign a bunch of stuff that's incredibly detailed about who gets what and what is included with the house and what expectations you have. And yet, as detailed as that is, the range of other stuff that can happen is still enormous. There's still an enormous amount of trust and faith that goes on, you know, just from things such as how clean the house is, um, whether the garage has been, you know, cleaned out of debris, uh, whether things that were included are that were said to be included are in the shape that you saw them in when you walked through the house sometimes months before. If you walk through a house and something, and you say, "Well, I would like that to be included," you write it into the contract. And in the three months or six months or six weeks that elapse between your purchase and taking ownership of the house, between your, your agreement and then taking possession, 
that item has somehow been damaged, which can happen all the time, you would be upset. And the owner would understand that that was wrong, even though you don't specify. There is no black letter uh, thing that it, where you take a photograph of it and say, if it's anything not like this, I get – there's an immense amount of trust and faith that, that go into play, uh, and it's true. You can always try to sue a person who violates that faith, but the costs of that are very high. What I think really maintains that that uh, trust and faith is a certain expectation that, that we feel should be abided by. And I think an enormous part of our lives you – know, the, the cafeteria story is a, a trivial example. The housing story is a much more important example. Things that happen in the workplace or in our marriages are, are much more important examples. There are certain expectations that are not written into our contracts – and we have a great advantage in America that so many of those things are part of, of, of what you are calling and what Hyatt called law, even though they're not quantified, they're not written down, and they're not part of the legal environment. They're part of our cultural environment. Yeah. In fact, I, I want to say we talk – and I think maybe even Hayek slips into this, this era of just carelessness. Maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. I don't recall specifically. But we talk about judge-made law. And that's a mistake. It's not judge-made law. You know, the common law is being judge-made law. Explain what you mean by common law and judge-made oh, law. Oh, well, the common law is the uh, – the, uh, lots of different possible meanings to what, what's mostly meant, particularly in discussions such as this. Common law is the uh, body of law that emerged in England and later in America, Anglo-American law that emerged in law courts. Uh, independent of, uh, or not directly influenced by, certainly not started by, legislation or statutes. Uh, decisions of British and later American courts on on uh, the enforceability of contracts, on negligence. Negligence. Uh, what what what, uh, what do you have to do to prove property own, ownership of a, of a piece of land, um, and. I'm a great admirer of the common law, as was Hayek. Well, I admire the common law largely because I've learned from Hayek. Um, but I've, other, other things, I've read about it myself in addition and discovered that Hayek's admiration is well justified. Um, but when people talk about the common law, they say, oh, well, that's judge-made law. Uh, and it's not judge-made law. It is, ju- at best, judge found law or judge articulated law the judge doesn't make the law if the if, if a judge makes law the judge is acting as a legislator uh, and that's the kernel of truth in the modern conservative antagonism toward judicial activism uh, uh, if, if there's going to be legislation that legislation ought to be done by duly elected legislators uh, not by judges who's, who were not appointed to legislate. And so legislation from the bench truly is a bad thing, at least as a, as, as a process matter. But uh, the, the common law itself, and the kind of law we're speaking about here, it may be discovered by a judge. It may be enforced uh, at the behest of, you know, by a judicial decree. It may be articulated by a judge. You know, the judge may help by articulating it, help the parties, both to the dispute and, and future parties, better understand what's at stake and what the expectations are, what the parameters are 
But the judge just discovers it if he's if he's doing his job, and that's helped incidentally by the the uh, the jury system. The great advantage of the jury system, in my view, is that it brought into courts of law uh, ordinary citizens uh, to bring to the courts, bring to the lawmaking process their the community's expectations about what appropriate behavior is and isn't. Juries were not originally fact finders as they allege, as they supposedly are today. Well, I want to come stick with this point because I think it it may be bewildering a bit. It was to me when I first heard it. What do you mean judges discover the law or find the law? They just make they make a decision. And you know, one analogy to help understand that is the idea I once heard that if you ask a banker who sets interest rates, the banker will say, "Well, I do. Right. I decide what I." What well, are my bank charges? Right. I'm, in, I'm in charge. But of course, if you charge something radically different from the market interest rate, you'll find out that you don't, in fact, uh, do that. It's hard to understand how that analogy goes over to the case of, of law and the role of judges. And I'm going to make a complaint that I, I part of the reason I had trouble understanding it is I think Hayek sometimes blurs what judges ought to do with what judges actually do and something in between. So let me try I agree to, with let that, me, actually. Let me try to explain yeah. that. Um, if a judge – I think I tried to make the case that what judges ought to do is discover what parties to a complaint to a dispute should have or often expect. Right. And in that sense, there's a discovery process for judges. But I think the, the deeper point – that's an interesting – claim. It's very controversial. Most, a lot of people would say, well, the judge should do what's right, or the judge should in, interpret the law. But Hayek had a very strange and I think brilliant and creative understanding of what judges ought to do, which is find out what most people expect in those situations, which is devoid of morality in a certain situ- certain sense. And And I think what he was trying to say there is that well, help me out there. I, I, the, I do see the confusion. I, mean, I think there is uh, some confusion in in high oh, I, and about you know between discussion between what judges actually do and what, what they should do ideally. Uh, but look, go, go back to the the school cafeteria example. Uh, suppose you do put your books down on the table, and you come back and and there I am. I'm sitting. You push them to the on I'm the floor. To the side. And you know normally you'd walk away, but you 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 you're, you're your afternoon class is canceled, and so you have some time, and you want to make a point. And so you say, "Listen, Don, what did you do?" I said, "Well, I sat here. There's no one sitting here, and, and I, you know, and then I, in fact, I might even yank out my student handbook and say, well, there's nothing in here about it.'" And, and you just know that's that's wrong. You say, "Well, look, we have a dispute here. Let's settle this like like gentlemen." And so we call upon someone uh, to to hear our case. Now, we obviously want someone who's who's unbiased. We want someone who uh, so we're not going to call on your mom or my girlfriend, my wife. We're going to call on someone that, that, that doesn't have a special interest in either one of us, someone whom we trust, someone, but also someone whom we expect understands the norms of our community. We're not going to grab a, a visiting stranger from another country who happens who's, to be walking by. Who's never been in a cafeteria. Right. Who's, who's, who's... And so you know, we, we, we may go to uh, you know, some very well-respected classmate. Friend of ours, both of ours, but not 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 biased. And so we say, listen, listen, uh, uh, Walter. Um, here here are the facts, and I want you to tell us, Walter. We want your honest opinion. 
who was right here? Russ says that because it's not written down, because no one was sitting in that chair, uh, or just because someone knew it wasn't written down, the fact that Don's sitting in that chair means that, that, that Don violated uh, Russ's property right, temporary property right in that seat. And I say, well, no, Walter, look, it's not written down. No one was sitting there, so I have a perfect right to sit there. I think... I don't know for sure. This is a mental experiment. I think any unbiased judge would say, well, you know, um, it seems to me that Russ is in the right. Uh, we, we, you know, our, the way we do things here is that books or backpacks put down on a cafeteria, empty cafeteria table temporarily reserve that space for the owner. Those are the expectations that we have. And so, Don, when you sat down there, you... Uh, violated that expectation. You violated the law. And maybe Walter might write this down. You know, he he, he might write 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 down. You know, what, 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 what publishes decision. What he decided, and then then it looks more legal. It looks like a, a a law. But it's not that he created it. He articulated the expectation. Now, uh, to the extent that we look to his hypothetical judge Walter as a law, you know, as a, as a as an oracle of the law, um, if he got it right, you know, if, if he if he accurately reflected the expectations, then to the extent there's any confusion, any lack of uh, information about what the expectations are, to the extent that we look to Walter and see what you know what he wrote about it, then we say, oh oh yeah, that, that the 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 books actually do reserve the place at the table. Uh, there'll be less. Um, Conflict in the future, less of these kinds of conflicts. But suppose Walter had decided he's going to make a law. So, well, you know, yes, I know it's expectation. That's but, not fair. But the that's, right, not. that's right. That's right. The, in, in my view, for whatever reason, the right thing. I'm do the right thing. Right. If no one's sitting there, the the person gets to uh, any other any, first, first first come first serve. The other person gets to actually sit there and push the books aside. Um, if that's as it is in this example, wildly at odds with the expectations that most people have. Then, potent, more potential conflict emerges. Uh, uh, the, you know, most people still have the same expectations about books reserving a place, and they honor that. Other people say, "Oh no, no, look, look, here is in the law. Here, here it says right here we can sit down there." And so, you get this tension between the the lawgiver, the lawmaker, the law finder, uh, and uh, the 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 people. Who you know, ordinary people who who are expected to follow the law. And so you get more conflicts that emerge. Maybe this is a process, this is a very controversial area, but maybe this is a process where you, if, if the law make, if the, if the judge gets it wrong, uh, then that results in more conflict, which results in more litigation, and, and so, so maybe through some kind of spontaneous order process itself, uh, once the judges, if only by happenstance, you know, happen to get it right, Will the will there will the amount of litigation decline, and so that correct ruling that's con, in conformity with the expectations will it it, it be the one that lasts and, and and be understood to be consistent with with what we all agree to be the law? But there's something deeper going on here that I want you to to talk about. The because again I think for most listeners this is such a for me it certainly was an extremely Alien and discomforting idea when you first encounter because it. You think of laws coming down from a, a marble dome. It's not just that. 
tell me if, if this is a correct interpretation. Hayek is very focused here on this, and, and we are in this example of of having expectations met, that you can go through life, it's what we call the rule of law, mm-hmm. that when mm-hmm. we talk about the power of the rule of law to enhance our well-being as uh, a nation or as an economy or as a, as a group, we often talk about the stability that that provides, the idea that you know the rules of the game. You don't have to constantly figure out, is this allowed, is that allowed? Because the more uncertainty there is about what's allowed and what is not allowed, the more time is devoted to discovering that, which is not productive, mm-hmm. and the less you can do to achieve your ends and dreams and goals and, that we were talking about before. So we, we understand the virtues of not having to rediscover constantly what's going on, not having to say, oh, wait, there's a new ruling down from Judge Walter that we've got to mm-hmm. comply with that's different than, wait a minute, we've always... So we understand that. But implicit in this discussion, it seems to me, is the idea that these expectations have something virtuous about them. Mm-hmm. They're not just, oh, well, these are the expectations and the law. The, the goal of a judge then is to confirm them, discover them, right. codify them as, they would, as they've come to exist. I think Hayek has a, has a deeper claim here that the expectations we have about how to interact with our fellow human beings in situations of potential dispute, property rights, merchant buyer interaction, that those themselves emerge from a competitive process and that therefore there's a virtue about them and that a judge who confirms them isn't merely maintaining the status quo. That's right. Yeah, and that is a deeper point. Actually, uh, the University of California law and economics scholar uh, Bob Cooter about 10 years ago in the mid-1990s, did a lot of interesting work on on how expectations, on how um, decentralized actions within markets uh, create patterns and expectations that are generally more efficient than are imposed patterns from the top. And Cooter argued that the reason the common law is so efficient is precisely because it's a Hayekian point: is that the courts uh, just just took these expectations and 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 and, and formulated them into law. Um, but the efficiency, to use a somewhat loaded term, but I, the the goodness, the morality, and the efficiency of effectiveness, the effectiveness of the 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 expectations and rules that emerged spontaneously through the you know, millions and millions of actions of millions and millions of people over time, uh, uh, precisely because these were the result of a competitive process in a way, a discovery process. You know, if you don't, you don't, people don't keep doing things if they, if they don't work. They adjust their actions to do something that works. And so as these adjustments take place, patterns of behavior and expectations emerge, a common law takes these expectations and makes them into law, recognizes them as, as being the law, declares them to be the law, hence reinforcing their legalness. Um, when I first read Cooter's stuff, he wrote several articles on it, uh, I, wrote, I wrote to him, I, I don't know him very well, I'm a little bit, I wrote to him and said, uh, hey, gee, Bob, you know, this sounds a lot like, like Hayek. And uh, it's been a long time, so I, my memory may be faulty, but I, I remember him writing back and he seemed to... Uh, uh, 
shocked and, and, and a little bit surprised that uh, I thought it sounded like Hayek. He didn't see Hayek in that, but it was it's definitely Hayekian. I, I, I think it's great. I think it's some of Cooter's best work, actually. Uh, I would because I'm a Hayekian. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, there are there are some kinds of rules that are that are that are purely there's no efficiency aspect to them at all. You just want coordination. Game theorists have a name for it, you know, like pure coordination games. And, you know, it makes it, there's nothing better Which side of the road about we drive right, on. exactly. That's the most obvious but, example. But there, but there aren't that many that that are that that are that uh, value free. Um, uh, you know, uh, whether or not. Uh, uh, a home buyer should expect to have the doorknob still on the doors when he takes possession of the house. Right. Um, it's not in the contract. Not, didn't, yeah. Didn't. But but most people would regard that not not only as well. That's the expectation, but probably compared to the alternative, that's that's the better way to be. It's the better rule, and it become became the better rule, and hence is recognized as part of the law uh, because the alternative. Uh, would have all sorts of negative downsides. It's a kind of a trite example, but you know, if, if if you know, when you take possession of a house, you don't want to you know be running to the hardware store the night and replacing all the doorknobs. <laughs> and of course, if if the owner of the house who's selling it puts in some extremely fancy, ornate, unique doorknobs, who can specify that, it under contract, that right? Comes that 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 the owner expects to take along when the house is sold. It will always be, almost always be specified in the contract precisely because of the hardship that would be involved and the expectations that that, that wouldn't be the case. Anglo-American law is, is shot through with, and I think it's a good thing, with the reasonable person standard. And, you know, it's saying, well, what, what would the reasonable person expect in these circumstances? And that's nothing other than, you know, what are the expectations? Right. Uh, I can imagine living in a society in which everybody expects it. When you take possession of a house, the doorknobs are gone. Right? It's not inconceivable. And if you're in that society, then the reasonable person expects that when they take possession of the house, there's no doorknobs on it. In our society, the reasonable person uh, expects to have doorknobs. And if the doorknobs aren't there, the reasonable person has a cause of action against against the seller. Uh, if, on the other hand, the buyer, the, the seller specified in the contract, I'm taking this doorknob with me when I leave then it would be unreasonable for the buyer to expect that when he takes possession that that doorknob is still there. Um, and, and, and so, I mean, the, the, the whole reasonable person standard that exists in, in, in tort law, contract law, property law, this is all, this is all, uh, it's a monument to the idea that our law is largely built on the expectations of people, which is why, incidentally, the, the, the old saying, the very famous saying, ignorance of the law is no excuse, why that makes sense when we're talking about true law, because uh, you can't you can't say, uh, well, I, I didn't know I was. I, let's say you really were unaware that you should you shouldn't rape a woman. You know, you, you just you just you know for some reason you know you were just bizarrely out of touch. And so it you know if we put a lie detector on you, we discover yes, he truly didn't know it was against the law that it was wrong. Well, this is a, no, absolutely not. The reasonable person doesn't go around raping women, right? That that's that's wrong. Um, but when we talk about legislation, it's a mistake. I think. I think actually a, a, a cruel. It's a cruelty to say that 
ignorance of the ignorance of legislation is no excuse. How are we supposed to know what legislation is? You know, the the, the government passes law saying we, we can't buy toilets that have uh, more than a certain amount of uh, gallons, wa- gallons of water in the tank. People don't read on a regular basis the Code of Federal Regulations in the, in the U.S. Code, um, and so it, it would if 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 I were to go out and buy such a tank. I mean, I happen to know that now because I study these things. But if I went on buy, uh, ordinary person goes out and buy such a tank and puts it in, would it be fair to convict that person of a criminal offense? Uh, and, and he says, "Well, Your Honor, I, I, I didn't know. Ignorance of the law is no excuse." Well, in that case, it is an excuse because it's not the law; it's legislation. It's an interesting example. It's shocking some of the things you're not allowed to do with your own property in America. In most, many or maybe most cities, if you want to add an addition to your house, you have to get the permission of the government. You have to get a permit. Uh, Now, most contractors are aware of that, people who make a living doing it. And I think most homeowners have come to know it. But what a strange world it is that you're expected, the government certainly expects you to, to know that. And uh, if you don't, they they will put you, they will find you, or, or make it hard for you to resell your house without that. Without yeah, and, that and I've heard in these circumstances, I've seen, I've, I've, uh, you know, people people will say very self righteously, you know, it's a principle of our society. Ignorance of the law is no excuse, and that just irritates me. I must say, because <laughs> yes, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Ignorance of legislation is is a darn good excuse. Um, uh, if you are, there's no reason to expect that people will be as familiar with legislation as they are with true law, precisely because legislation, by and large, does not emerge from people's expectations and from, from patterns of practice. It emerges, uh, uh, it's, it's, creative, it's created ex nihilo out of, the, out of the minds of legislators. Well, we're almost out of time, Don. Is there anything else you want to say about the book, Law, Legislation, Liberty, Volume 1, Rules and Order? We, we've, we've scratched the surface here. There's a lot, I know there's a lot more to say. Uh, anything else you want to add? Yeah, I want to. If, if I want to just read a quotation, it's one of the deepest things I've ever read. It's on page 106 and 107, and it, it may be out of context, but it relates to something you said a moment ago. And this is uh, under the subheading, it's a terrible subheading: the maximal coincidence of expectations is achieved by the delimitation of protected dom- domains. Meaning, oh, that's a, yeah. that, meaning that, meaning that uh, our expectations are most secure when property rights are, are secure. And here's what Hayek says in his very Hayekian way. The main reason why it is so difficult to see that rules of conduct serve to enhance the certainty of expectations is that they do so not by determining a particular concrete state of things, but by determining only an abstract order which enables its members to derive from the particulars known to them expectations that have a good chance of being correct. Dot, dot, dot. What can remain constant in such an overall order, which continually adjusts itself to external changes and provides the basis of predictions, can only be a system of abstract relationships and not its particular elements. This means that every change must disappoint some expectations, but that this very change which disappoints some expectations creates a situation in which, again, the chance to form concrete expectations is as great as possible. As possible. Dot dot dot. This is the last passage I read. And the only method yet discovered of defining a range of expectations, which will be thus protected and thereby reducing the mutual interference of people's actions with each other's intentions, is to demarcate for every individual a range of permitted actions by designing, or rather by making recognizable by the application of rules to the concrete facts, ranges of objects over which only particular individuals are allowed to dispose and to dispose and from the control of which all others are excluded. 
Now, end of quotation. That's really uh, abstract stuff. It probably doesn't come across well in the reading, but if you reflect on that and read it, in high, it is an incredibly deep insight. It's just astonishingly deep. Tell, tell, tell us why. What's he trying to say? He's trying, he's try, he's trying to say, say look, uh, uh, I think in a way he's warning. He said, look, I am not, I, Hayek, am not saying that no expectation will ever be, uh, no legitimate expectation will ever be upset. Or disappointed. Or disappointed. Uh, there are, the, what we want to achieve is a, is a situation in which uh, the, 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 our chances of having our expectations satisfied on an ongoing basis are as high as possible. That means, that entails us agreeing to have some of our expectations disappointed. Right? You expect every morning to get a bagel at a bagel shop. Okay? Um, now, that may mean that uh, if the particular bagel shop that you have been patronizing uh, uh, if for whatever reason consumers don't like those bagels as much as they like the bagels of a competitor, um, uh, the the expectation of the bagel shop owner uh, that he remain in business or will be always in business that has to be sub- that that is that's an expectation that we have to allow to be disappointed so that the ongoing process of keeping the bagel supply high and the quality and price reasonable uh, will be will be met. It, but it, it, it's very I, deep. Yeah. That's a great point. I, I'm I'm glad you read that because when you were talking earlier about the reasonable standard, re, what's it called, reasonable man standard, reasonable person, reasonable now, yeah, person. Re, you don't standard. say reasonable man anymore, right? Reasonable person. Um, the reasonable person doesn't say reasonable man. There you go. Um, what a reasonable person can expect changes. Yes. Over time. So we were talking earlier before we started this interview that I'd gone in last night with a power cord that was giving me troubles with my uh, Apple computer. And I didn't know whether I needed a new one or a new battery or something else. And I went into the Apple store and they just gave me a new one. And I I, I was pleasantly surprised, but I wasn't incredibly surprised. Uh, the ability to take back a garment that you buy, at a, a shirt or a suit coat that you... You decide, and hey, I don't like it, and um, you walk back into the the store you bought it in, and, and you say, you know, I, I bought this yesterday. I, I realized it's it just it's not me. I don't like it. Most stores in America now take that back, and you'd be surprised if they said, well, you bought it. Caveat emptor. Yeah, right. it's over. Uh, that ability to return items is not caught of the, the incredible flexibility that that merchants now offer customers. You can return like months after. You can return stuff that you've worn. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, you know, so eager for you to be happy, um, be, not because they love you, but because of competition from other stores that are doing the same thing. Uh, what's considered reasonable in that context now is very different than what was reasonable in 1950 or 1975, and that is part of the competitive evolutionary process. So I think it's an incredibly important point that, you know, in our earlier discussion, we're talking about whether these expectations have any virtue just by the fact that they're expectations? Well, one answer is yes. They have virtue because they have evolved in competition with other expectations. But but this point of Hayek's, I think, is, is much deeper because what he's saying is, is that the process of civilization itself 
depends in some dimension on the disappointment of expectations. Yes. But not too much. That's, right. <laughs> that's why it's that's a subtle. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, it's it. That's why I, I encourage listeners to um, certainly to read the whole book, and and, and to ref, you know to reflect on on this book. I've read it probably three times, uh, cover to cover, over the past nearly thirty years. And it's been a while. It's probably been seven or eight years since I've last read it, cover to cover. But every time I read it, uh, or just dip into it, I. I find more there, which I think is a sign of, of a really profound work. My guest today has been Don Boudreau, chair of the economics department at George Mason University and my co-host at our blog, Cafe Hayek. And now on to some more economics and your emails. First, I want to follow up on Don's remark about how difficult it is for any of us to keep up with the bewildering array of legislation not law, but legislation, that comes out of Congress and our local legislatures. After I finished the interview with Don, I happened to come across a publication of the text of a speech by Milton Friedman that he gave in October of 1974. He was speaking to an audience of business people about how government regulations restrict our freedoms in ways we don't think about. And at one point, he talks about how business leaders will stay silent in the face of a restriction of freedom for fear of having their company face legal action. Now, in the quote that follows, when Friedman uses the word law, he really means legislation in the Hayekian sense. But he makes the same point Don was making earlier about the complexity of legislation. Friedman says to his audience, if you'd been head of one of those corporations, you would have gone along too. Why would you have gone along? Not because you believed it was morally justified but because you would have been afraid of what might happen to your income tax returns or whether your company would be slapped with an antitrust suit or whether you'd be charged with breaking some other law. The number of laws is so great that I doubt that there's a man in this room, myself included, who could not be sent to prison if there were a sufficiently determined attempt by prosecutors to do it. There are laws we've all broken, not because we are not law-abiding, but because there are so many laws and so many that we don't know about. Now on to your email. Listener Oliver Seidel from Germany responded to Brian Kaplan's claim that Europeans have a lower standard of living than Americans. Brian mentioned that Europeans' housing is more cramped, they have less access to air conditioning, they have fewer cars, they eat less meat. And Oliver writes in part, In this week's interview, you strayed from the discrimination in labor markets to standards of living. I used to define standard of living by how old people get on average. But your cars, square feet, beef, and air conditioning got me reevaluating that position. Here are my thoughts. Germans do love their cars. They feel they're getting a much superior driving education to Americans. I know. I spent a year in the United States and hold a Massachusetts driving license. You wouldn't believe what I had to listen to when I didn't get a German one. I think Americans love the freedom to go wherever they like. Well, I feel the car is very much more a status symbol. Your piece on design and consumer products was talking about this distinction. And as an aside, that's a reference to the podcast with Virginia Postrel on style and aesthetics. Oliver continues, before today's piece, I thought Amer before today's piece, I thought Germans had a higher standard of living than Americans, and I think Germany is richer than the average uh, standard of living in Europe. I agree that accommodation in Europe is more cramped. I think it's a trade-off between driving time and space. We have enough space, but the economic centers are cramped, and the countryside is sparsely settled. The density is different compared to your country. I've never missed, nor has any Swede, Norwegian, or Scot, the air conditioning, but you guys were probably talking about places like Greece, which are, I completely agree, 
substantially poorer than the United States and could do well with air conditioning. Uh, just as another aside, I'll mention that France suffered numerous deaths from a heat wave a few years back due to a lack of air conditioning. I don't know whether that was due to the relative expense of air conditioning in France and their lo lower, perhaps, standard of living, or whether that was a particularly unusually hot summer. Oliver continues, I personally am not representative of either the median American nor European. I don't much like beef. I much prefer being chauffeured to driving, and I, cons and I consider space a luxury that at this time in life I'd rather trade off for savings. Thanks for your letter, Oliver. As I mentioned in the discussion with Brian, you do have to be careful when looking at standard of living not to look at a few things and ignoring others. But even then, you wouldn't, you'd, even then you'd want to control for demographic differences between the two areas that might affect your measurement, particularly if you use lifespan or other health measures as a measure of standard of living. One thing I'd be interested in is how people vote with their feet. Which way does the traffic run? Do more people from America emigrate to Europe? Or do more people from Europe emigrate to the United States? Is there a difference in the kind of people who move in one direction compared to the other? If you've seen data on that question, let me know. Or if you have any other comments for me or on our podcasts, please write me at mail at econtalk.org. Mail at econtalk.org. And be sure to visit econtalk.org for links related to our discussion and to other podcasts you might enjoy. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.